Welcome to Deconstructing Conventional, a show that's unafraid to challenge the status quo. We are eager to question our assumptions, to find wrong turns in our thinking, and take on controversial topics. This show is brought to you by True Whole Human, a coaching business that helps clients find the first principles that lead to better health and better living. I'm your host, Christian Elliott. I'll do my best to stay curious and humble. You do the same, and we're both bound to learn something. Welcome to the show. Prepare to have your thinking stretched. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 17. So today I had the pleasure of interviewing another medical doctor who went through her own great awakening as COVID played out. And she's another example of someone who had the fortitude to question everything. But she did so as someone with a major role in a big institution. And she knew that it would put her career on the line if she got out of line. So um, we had a lot to talk about, and we talked about what that process was like. So as many of you know, I'm working on a, a comprehensive guide for the for detoxing from the COVID shots, and um, I'm doing my best to give you a wide variety of opinions, and I'll, I'll keep bringing you different people who will stretch your thinking. So Heather comes from what would, I guess, what you could call the, the mainstream alternative perspective about these COVID shots. And so besides being someone confident and brave enough to speak out, one thing I, I guess I appreciated about this interview is that while we focused on the theory that the main mechanism of harm from these injections is the mRNA basically hijacking our bodies and turning it into a factory to force it to make a toxic protein, this so-called spike protein. Um, To her credit, I hit her with other theories about what might be going on. And while she can articulate the spike protein perspective very well, she's also happy to admit that it's a theory and that she isn't dismissive of other possible mechanisms of harm that may have merit. So I'll talk more about those type of mechanisms in future episodes more. But for now, I want to just one thing I also appreciated about interviewing her is that while we come from very different backgrounds in terms of health or helping people heal, she's really just a breath of fresh air and such a willingness to investigate, to question things, to think in a holistic way, to help me think in a scientific way. And we've actually spent several hours just going back and forth. And she's really helped me find new questions and um, accelerate this process. So um, among other things we talked about is some of her regrets of being someone who used to previously push vaccines. And now she just talks about how she sees her profession differently and what she does differently as a doctor, how her practice has changed. And uh, she also talked about where she begins with people who may be vaccine injured. And she wraps things up with really some great words of encouragement and tells you what to look for when searching for a doctor. And the answer might surprise you a little bit. So without further ado, enjoy my conversation with Dr. Heather Gessling. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. My guest today is Dr. Heather Gessling. She is a family medicine physician in in private practice. She's the former chief of staff of Moberly Regional Medical Center, where she worked for eight years. She also served as the director of operations for the Global COVID Summit organization. She was previously the COO for the medical board of the Wellness Company, and she's currently the owner of a thriving primary care phys- uh, practice in two locations in Missouri. So I would I would also say that Heather is probably one of the most genuine people that I have ever met. She is a grounded mother of three. She's a fearless warrior for truth and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now I've actually roped her into this process of helping me with the detox guide, which has been very refreshing for me to meet another doctor who is abundantly willing to help and is not afraid to question everything. So Heather, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks. I've been looking forward to this. Excited to do this. Right on. Well, um, so based before I guess before we get into today's topic, just give us a little window into who is Dr. Gessling. What got you into becoming a doctor in the first place? Yeah, you know, this is the second time I've had to answer this question this week. I had to answer it in my small group at church, talking about passions growing up and are they different from your passions now? And what's interesting is I feel like I've been the same when I was five as I am now. Like I loved the Lord and I loved, you know, the thought of being a doctor or love medicine. I was um, uh, playing when I was a little girl and my, I was in um, at my grandparents' house and my grandfather said, what are you doing, Heather? And I told him I was playing, you know, that I was a nurse and nothing against nurses. He just said, have you ever thought about maybe just going ahead and being a doctor? And I said, oh, okay, that's what I want to do. And it never changed for the rest of my life. Went, you know, 
basically on that path. And I feel like it's uh, my um, definite calling and I love healing people. And I love bringing in um, the Lord in that aspect, praying for people, talking about their faith. It's my passion. Fantastic. So my other little girls were playing house, you were playing doctor, huh? Uh, oh, for sure. Yeah, I have pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. Okay. Well, so rewind your story and kind of just um, tell us where you were professionally and, and kind of the security you felt or the headspace you were in before COVID started. And we'll go from there. Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, I was in a um, practice that was a very, very busy practice. I, I feel like I probably was one of the was one of the busiest physicians in this country. I was seeing, um, I don't know, hundreds of patients a week. I was seeing about 40 a day sometimes, sometimes 50. Um, so busy. And I felt like I was doing a, as good a job as I could. I mean, there was just a shortage of primary care. I was doing my best to take care of a lot of patients. They had needs. And, um, and I was an employed physician. I was chief of staff. I was trying to do my best to help run um, the hospital, take care of patients. But I was in that insurance world. And I was also fairly mainstream. I did question um, things. I questioned evidence-based medicine. I felt like, you know, the physician-patient relationship was important and being able to individualize patient care was important. And I wasn't a big fan of these protocols and guidelines that we were supposed to always incorporate. And, you know, the time I spent with my patients, I felt like needed to be not influenced by outside organizations that were telling me what, what I was supposed to do. So, so I, I was a little bit of a rebel in that aspect, but I was also, you know, doing all the typical, I was giving um, every vaccine that was recommended. And um, when I started to question vaccines, that was a moment that was a life-changing moment. It was a paradigm shift. I remember thinking, um, well, if this is, if I dig deep and I realize that these things aren't safe, I, I won't be able to work here anymore. My whole life will change. I will have to figure out how to, you know, support uh, my family and be a doctor and provide patient care, but it wouldn't be in this clinic because I was actually um, the director for the Vaccines for Children program at my rural health clinic. And um, everything about that rural health clinic was centered around uh, giving vaccines and being um, compliant with our accountable care organization. And anyway, so when, when COVID hit, of course, everything changed. So it was easy to see that we were being told lies, that there was an agenda. And I am so thankful because that changed everything for me. Yeah, yeah. So you started seeing the va- you started questioning vaccines before COVID happened. Is that right? I did. I can't remember the I th- I feel like it was probably 2019. And, um, and I, I remember questioning them whenever my youngest daughter was born in 2016. And I, I am, you know, I think back to that moment so many times when I was in the hospital with her, and I was wondering if she really needed to have this injection on the first day of her life. And, Unfortunately, I didn't say no. I I just, you know, let a lot of things influence me. I regret that. And my children are, um, they're fairly, I mean, I would say they're healthy. They're typical children. But my middle child has a, a severe tree nut allergy with anaphylaxis a few times in her life. And my youngest daughter has so many food sensitivities. And my son has history of asthma and food allergies and eczema, you know, all these things that I see now were most likely related to injection of poisons, toxins. Wow. What a, so what was the first thing that had you go, wait a minute, maybe I should question this. Was there one particular moment where you can remember saying, hang on, or what did it kind of just slowly seep into your consciousness and you can't really remember a moment? I remember the moment. I was in my bedroom. It was when we were on lockdown and I was seeing patients telehealth and I was listening to the news and they, they were talking about, I had been learning about what was helping patients with COVID and how nutrients were so important. Um, 
conditions that were affecting that affected zinc, you know, that um, can create sort of the zinc deficiency conditions like diabetes and obesity, um, learning those things, learning how vitamin D was playing a role. And then I, you know, found out about hydroxychloroquine and I learned the mechanism of that and how it pulls in zinc. And so then I was like, oh, well, then this connects. And I started understanding how hydroxychloroquine could, could help, especially um, early on with viral replication. And so at that point that I started seeing that they were attacking that medicine, oh, it was, I was, I was, I remember walking into my bathroom and I thought, oh, this is it. We're at, uh, we're in a war for truth. And it was my job to protect my patients. And so I buckled down and I stopped listening to the lies and took care of my patients. Okay. So tell us about your experience working in a hospital as that revelation is playing out. Because you and I talked before about the track record you had helping people and what the hospital was wanting or expecting from you. And there was a tension there. So tell us that story. Yeah. So I remember since I was chief of staff, I had a moment, I think it was the end of February, the very beginning of March. And I thought, oh, you know, we got to, we got to kind of get prepared for this. And so I called a meeting on a Monday morning, I, I started, I told administration, we need to have a meeting. And we met in the boardroom and that room was packed. And it was, um, everybody wanted to talk about it. Everybody wanted to figure out what do we need to do? And so I was sharing the information I had at the time and we didn't know much and uh, everybody else didn't know much. And so I, I realized It was going to be my responsibility. I just had to figure out how to take care of my patients. But the thing is, you know, as the pandemic progressed and I realized how important nutrients were, nutraceuticals and all the things that we were being told not to do, like getting outside and moving and eating, you know, they weren't encouraging eating healthy. And I understood that that was super important. And um, early outpatient treatment, all of those things that I was realizing were going to be saving my patients. I was trying to talk about it with the other physicians in my hospital and my peers. Nobody wanted to hear it. They were just, Mm. they would just look at me. They would just like, they would just give me this blank stare and talking about what was working. I was talking to trying to talk to the ER doctors and tell them to do, you know, that type of thing. And it wasn't, that's not what they were being told from the top down. And so they really had no interest in hearing it. And so my, I remember it was about um, a year in, well, a little over a year in, it was April of 2021. And I realized with, with my patients, which I had thousands in my panel and all of the ancillary providers that were under me, the nurse practitioners, the PA, um, none of us had had anybody die. We had been successfully treating every single patient that came our way. And I told that to my um, CEO and he gave me a, a blank stare. He was like, oh, you know, when he realized my patients weren't going into the hospital, they weren't dying. I think that it was like this pivotal moment where we weren't so uh, we were we were definitely not on the same page. Well, you weren't bringing in the big bucks from the government for COVID that you could have been had the situation gone differently. Is that essentially what was the elephant in the room there? Potentially. (laughs) Yeah, hard to say, but okay. Yeah, it's just, it's remarkable that you just went away from what the powers that be told you to do and it worked and it wasn't celebrated the way it could have been. So interesting. So how then has COVID, well, how has COVID shaped the way you see your profession now because of the lack of celebration or the lack of what you would perceive to be the way you honor your Hippocratic oath? Somehow that wasn't celebrated the way we would want it to be. So what's changed about the way you've even seen the medical profession since then? Yeah, it's been a complete failure. I feel like they have absolutely let down patients. And now patients no longer trust the profession. They're leaving it in droves. They don't want to do um, mainstream medicine. They don't want to they don't want to walk into a hospital. They don't want to do, you know, normal, even do normal screenings. They want to get all pharmaceuticals. They don't trust any vaccines. They, they, um, they want to take control of their health, which is amazing. And I'm here for them to help them with that. 
Yes, you are. Okay, so talk to me more about, I guess, your ongoing, both of us have had, we've talked about this, our ongoing awakening. So what have been some of the biggest, I guess, red pills you've had to metabolize since COVID started in 2020? Um, the fact that um, a majority of my training was based on a foundation of not not of healing, but of mm. treatment and a lot of lies a lot of uh, research lies, a lot of bias, a lot of pharmaceutical company influences. And the fact that um, the, the way, the pathway to health is very different than what I learned in medical school. Yeah, I bet. So in what ways then has what you've experienced in the, I guess we'll call the great awakening of what the medical profession does and doesn't do well, how has that shaped how you practice medicine now? So I go much more deep and foundational. Uh, If they have issues with uh, obesity, metabolic syndrome, nutritional deficiencies, they have to, we have to heal that. Um, If pharmaceuticals affect so many different aspects of health that being able to get them off of those pharmaceuticals um, quickly and safely is so important and being able to have them understand that their health is actually uh, restoration of their health is an attainable thing. Whenever I talk to my patients about restoring their health, reversing disease, especially new patients, it's like they had, they had no idea that that's actually possible, that that's a concept, that they could, re- they could reverse their diabetes, that they could get off of blood pressure medicines and, and, uh, and uh, reverse that disease process, that they'd be able to get off of, <coughs> excuse me, cholesterol medicine, all of those things. They think it's a lifelong thing. Wow. I bet you that is a significant paradigm shift. I imagine if I'm in the shoes of that patient, and I've come in expecting you to just give me another pill or another particular thing I need to swallow to manage my health. And you start presenting them with the paradigm of getting off of medications and healing. That's probably something that's just they've not expected and refreshing to hear, I imagine. Has that kind of been their response? Yes. They're like, this is amazing. They're so happy. And, you know, just the fact that they feel like that they have some control and that it it is an attainable thing. It gives them such hope. They have, you know, such agency again, right? They have the ability to nudge the outcome rather than just be a victim of whatever biological fatalism they've been told was how things were going to go. Oh, exactly. But you know, another thing with that, um, that position that they're in where they feel like they're um, stuck with being on these medications is a, is a, a position of having faith in their physicians and in this system, almost mm-hmm. like it's a religion, almost like it's they they have submitted themselves to it, and they are scared that something bad is going to happen if they if they walk away from that necessarily, you know, where they where they it's become their life. You know, oh, I just put on this new medicine or I had to have this doctor's appointment, that type of thing. Interesting. So that just a, the mindset that you're in the middle of shifting, if I can feed back to you what I think I heard is you've, you're, you've had people coming in who have this reverence for medicine or for the doctor. And they're, they're, it's, it's a whole new category to entertain that this isn't actually healing you. This is just managing some of the symptoms you have. And there's a different way to do this. And they have to, um, in many ways, metabolize that thought in real time with you to participate in their own healing. Is that essentially what you're saying? Yes. And in addition, this a common conversation that I have to have with patients when we're working through this process of um, uh, discontinuing medications, deprescribing, is their fear, their fear yeah. of what am I going to tell my cardiologist or, you know, what are they going to think of me? Their fear of not complying with, and, and this is not all patients. So you're right. There's like these two types of patients that are 
you know, have become so bought into the system, but they want a better way. And then they come to me. And then there's those that don't want to have anything to do with the system anymore. But these patients that are bought into the system and we talk about deprescribing, they have to go through this process of realizing that they are in control of their own health and their own body. They get to make their own decisions. It's not determined by their specialist. Their specialist doesn't have control over them deciding to take a pill. That's the that's up to the patient. And so yeah. it's like they have lost, like you said, they they retain, they regain their agency. They have lost that over the years of submitting to this system of being able to say yes and no, they just comply. Right. Well, I can imagine it's fun for people to realize, I mean, I don't have to just be a robot and do what other people tell me to do. I can actually, nobody's ever going to know my health better than me. And, and for you to nudge them with the words to help them realize that I, I'm never going to walk a mile in your shoes like that. So your intuition is welcome in the room and I want to help you thrive and heal and sometimes that means mm -hmm. we don't medicate. And so no wonder your right. practice is thriving. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I want to shift gears with you for a second. So there's an, another fascinating part of your story is because of your background, you were recruited to be the COO of the medical team for a business called the Wellness Company, which just mm -hmm. speaks to your reputation because there are a lot of high profile doctors that you were tasked to lead as part of that organization. So as I understand it, that experience in many ways kind of gave you a front row seat to seeing some of the damage done by these COVID injections and then the effort by different researchers to help figure out how to help people detox and heal from the carnage they have caused. So before we get into some of the details, kind of give me your 30,000 foot view, you know, take the gloves off and just tell us what do you think that we as humanity have been living through, or I guess in some ways are still living through since 2020, what has come to light? And then we'll zoom in on, on what we believe to be the nature of these shots. Yeah, so my 30,000 foot view, um, which I think has become more and more understood by my peers, my fellow medical freedom fighters, those that I've worked closely with, um, is that we're dealing with evil, and it's hard to just say that this is an unintentional um, consequence that these these deaths or these um, severe illnesses are just unintentional. And it was really just um, uh, low, um, I don't know, preparation on the part of the government to foresee these things happening. And so it becomes more and more evident that the government knew and that we were given poison and that mm. we were lied to. So that's my 30,000 foot view, which is not the same as what everybody thinks. You know, some of them, some give a little bit more benefit of the doubt to mm. our agencies mm. or to the government. Um, that's not my point of view. Yeah, well, it, it's I guess I think what you're saying is it's it's been hard to believe them. And I found the same thing. The more I, you intellectually, honestly, as best you can look at what we've lived through to say this is just well intended, but it's bad judgment and to believe the best about what's going on. It, that just doesn't hold anymore. The way you see the suppression of doctors not being able to speak, you see the way that the treatments that we knew would be helpful were not allowed in the room and then the censorship and the the refusal to remove a, a known damaging product from the market and the continual approval of that at some point you have to entertain uncomfortable questions like what in the world is keeping this going on and see i'm i'm right there with you that there's something evil about that and it rests it, it brings up harder to swallow questions of how shall we then live and what else do i not know and my gosh if that's true then i guess my behavior and my worldview are going to have to adapt to meet that. Is that basically more or less what you're saying? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, cool. So more specifically about the injections then. So what have you learned, I guess, the high level of how they're impacting people? There's so many different adverse events being reported, but I want to get into some of the more the mechanisms as far as we can tell. So you've been super gracious and patient with me, helping me get my head around what seems to be some of the most agreed upon mechanisms of harm. But um, tell me what you think initially, what, what do you think is creating so many of these adverse reactions? 
inflammation from toxins in the injection and the potential pathologic proteins that are being continuously or at least produced for a long time in those that have taken the injections. We have two different components of what is going on. We don't have, I feel like, absolutely solid consensus on what is in the injections. We also don't have solid consensus on what the injections do or designed to do. But when you look at the conditions that are being created, clots, autoimmune disease, blockages of arteries causing heart attacks and stroke, strokes, I think that it's evidence of an inflammatory process. And I, I think that everybody would agree on that. And I think if you can get to the basics of that, then you can get to the basics of how to heal and move forward from that. Okay. So one of the, what seems to be, at least in the, the research I've been doing, one of the more agreed upon mechanisms of harm in these injections is the so-called spike protein. So let me riff for a second about what I think I understand or what makes sense to me, and you can kind of give me a reality check on it. So as I understand it, the idea is there's a, a snippet of mRNA that kind of goes into the cell. And in some way, the, the logic is it programs the cell to make a particular protein. And a protein is like a, it's a, if you think of, I use Legos as an analogy, like the individual Legos are the amino acids that are used to construct a protein. And so that protein is then the one that we're referring to is a particular one they call spike protein. And sometimes those proteins misfold or they don't get, the construction crew is not very good. And somehow there's like, they become amyloid or they become fibrous. And the theory is that somehow the mRNA injection told the cells to continue to make this protein. And what you're saying is it seems that there, there isn't a timeline horizon where the production has been stopped and it seems to be an ongoing process. So if I missed something there, tighten up my kind of my thinking or help me explain what I may have missed about mRNA and spike protein and um, how it might be spreading through the body or impacting people's immune systems or that sort of thing. Yeah. So that's pretty good. It, <clears throat> it's a pretty good summary. So just to um, help everybody be clear about what we are pretty sure about. Yeah. yeah. So the mRNA sequence is a sequence. Well, this is for the for the two mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. Um, and then we have the different um, Johnson and Johnson and AstraZeneca that are adenovirus vectors that have DNA. But we'll just stick with the mRNA for now because the end result is similar for both of, for all four of them or for both technologies. So the mRNA is encapsulated in this lipid nanoparticle and the lipid nanoparticle is designed, it's a lipid, um, is designed to be able to slip through all the different cells in your body, no matter what the type. We were told at the beginning Oh, it's just going to stay in the muscle. It's just going to tell those cells around the injection site to program those cells to produce the spike protein. The mRNA sequence is the sequence to produce the spike protein, which the spike protein is composed of two subunits, S1 and S2, with a furin cleavage. Um, and the um, spike protein, we knew even before the vaccine was made, is a very problematic protein. It's very mm -hmm. pathologic and it creates inflammation. And it's hard to believe that everybody was so, um, I don't know, uh, brainwashed to think that they should take um, a, an injection that's going to create a pathologic protein. And maybe they thought this pathologic protein is very short-lived. It's no big deal. But the problem is that there are many mechanisms that we are aware of now that can contribute to long-acting 
formation of the spike protein, including, and the spike protein is being made by our cells. And the difference between what the vaccine does and what an infection does is that when you get an infection, and I understand there's controversy about infection and viruses and all that, but whenever you get an infection, your, your cells that are in the respiratory epithelium, the lung epithelium, the lung cells, those are the ones that are going to produce and replicate, produce the spike protein and replicate the virus. The difference with that and the vaccine is that because of that lipid nanoparticle designed to go into all the different cells, it's going to potentially go throughout your whole entire system. Biodistribution studies from Japan shows that it show that it goes to bone marrow, ovaries, testes. We know that the technology for lipid nanoparticles is that it can also cross the blood-brain barrier, which is which is very very scary. And so, because of that, it's not just your respiratory epithelium. It's not just the cells that are with the virus. It's all the different cells around your body. And the 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 terrible part about that is that those spike proteins are now going to come out from inside the cell and and be on the outside of the cell and be even sort of um, presenting itself on the lining of your arteries, the epithelium, pre- presenting themselves within your heart muscle, um, all of these areas that are would are devastating for the for the um, for the body because it creates inflammation and can contribute to those things that we talked about earlier, such as clot formation. And so whenever the clot formation happens, we, as far as what I have learned, we know that those clots start with fibrin, sort of a fibrin foundation, which is in, which is what clots are typically um, uh, formed with, which is fibrin. But then there is this protein tail that we've seen, um, which is which is a, a very abnormal substance creating these clots, and they're not the typical fibrin clots. And what the what these tails or these protein tails are actually composed of, I think we need to get some consensus on, like an amyloid type protein created potentially from the spike protein sort of collecting and misfolding on itself and, um, and being very, very hard to break down. And so one of the reasons why patients who have these clots that are associated with the vaccine are not really reacting to typical um, um, pharmaceuticals that can help stop clot formation and allow your body to break them down is because these are not the typical fibrin clots. Now, what we know, amazingly, is that natokinase, which is a proteolytic enzyme, meaning it's an enzyme that is going to break down protein, can not only break down fibrin, which we've known that for a long time, which helps it be a natural blood thinner, but it can also help break down the spike protein itself, which if that's a component of these um, protein type clots is beneficial. And then we have studies from years ago that show it can break down amyloid as well. And so patients that have been on typical pharmaceutical blood thinners for a long time with these clots are now showing benefit when they start taking natokinase, which is a, which is a um, nutraceutical. Hang on. Well, I'm, it, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Cause one of the things you, as you know, I've been trying to get my head around is these, these clots. And so I want to see if I can speak a little layman here just to make sure we're the audience can help picture what we're talking about. So the, if you're unfamiliar with this or you haven't seen it, there's these fibrous like vein shaped clots that are more they're almost like calamari or they're boingy they seem to have some elasticity if you squish them they'll they'll rebound whereas a normal clot's more like jelly so if you had jelly on your counter it would be hard to pick it up with your fingers well these are more like you could you could tie it in a knot and that is something that's new since covid started and if i think 
I think if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying, Heather, is that there's there's debate on what's happening here. But there, one explanation is there's this massive runaway overgrowth of of these proteins being made, and sometimes they're fold on themselves and they get they get sticky, and that's one explanation. And the other would be hydrogels. But is, if, w- before I get to hydrogels, is that essentially what you're talking about? Is is that that type of process? That's that's what I would say. Is that the the process is a pathologic process, unlike anything we've seen in the past. It's not responding to typical treatments that we've done for clots in the past. The appearance of them is not like anything we've seen in the past. Um, and I and I think that recognizing the actual composition or learning what is actually happening is important, but it's not absolutely necessary for us to be able to help the situation and, and treat the patient or heal the patient. Yeah, I guess to your point, once we've found or identified something that tends to dissolve the, the clot or the, the, whatever this amyloid structure is that doesn't also mm-hmm. damage the body, then we're on to something. And maybe that is, it's, maybe it's an ongoing thing as a preventative for if the body is continuing to make this. And maybe there are other explanations for why they're forming, but that would be one prudent thing you'd say would be just a, a, an ongoing measure people could take in order to, pr- to help their health if they did take the shot. Is that about right? Yeah, agree. And something that I was going to say earlier that I really didn't touch on is why is there, why is there um, this potential um, long acting production of spike And there are so many mechanisms to that. What we know from earlier earlier in 2022, I believe, is that there was evidence of integration of the RNA sequence that had been reverse transcribed into DNA, and, and they found it in liver cells, hepatocytes. And we know that reverse transcriptase ex- exists in many different areas of the body, including your platelets. And so it can take that RNA sequence and take it backwards to the DNA. And mm-hmm. we know that the RNA that is in your body that is injected is not degradated the same as RNA from your own um, body because of the fact that they have a synthetic um uh, pseudouridine nucleotide in that sequence. And so it's, it's sticking around for a long time and doing its damage, wreaking its havoc. Another thing that we have recently found out is the fact that there is evidence, um, multiple labs across the country, and I think across the world, have now uh, found evidence of DNA contamination in the vaccines. Well, how did that get there? Well, the the production process that was the quickest and probably most economical um, was using DNA plasmids to do quick and large scale production replication of the sequences that were used for the mRNA sequence. And what they did was um, in trying to uh, um, produce the vials, they didn't really clean up the DNA plasmas. They tried to just chop them up and think that that was, you know, uh, adequate process. And so these vials have now been tested and they have billions of copies, uh, billions of pieces of the DNA from those DNA plasmids. And the problem with that is that it can then go replicate inside your like E. coli, your gut biome, and potential spike replication indefinitely from these cells, from these E. coli cells that are now spike factories. And that is a big, big problem. And that's another way that spike protein production can be indefinite. Right. And just the fact that that's come to light, that there are foreign DNA or plasmids or other things in these shots, and it's easy to prove, yet there's no effort to recall them. There's no um, talk about how to treat this amongst the, the, the powers that be. Is another one of those head scratchers where you, it's hard to arrive at any other conclusion than this is an evil agenda that's being foisted on that's us. Right. And so um, 
Yeah. Thank you for, for that explanation, for bringing it to light. I guess to, to clarify my thinking here. So what I think I understood or heard you say is, and I'm trying to figure out how I'd explain it, would be that this this sequence, whether it's the plasmid and the, the DNA that's in that or the way the mRNA tends to write into our code, it's like the DNA is essentially the blueprint. And it's as if someone came in and, and etched a different part of the blueprint to tell the body to make something different. Is that essentially what you're saying is happening here? Or did I sim- to oversimplify yeah, that? Yeah, so it can, it can happen through the the DNA integration, or it can happen through the longstanding mRNA sequence that's still sticking okay. around. Got it. Okay, so the other topic, I guess this, I want to go over some of the, I guess, more highly controversial. There's some of the, the spike protein seems to be the thing that I guess in the mainstream alternative, if you will, is the least debated or the the most leaned upon as the explanation, but there's several other potentially controversial mechanisms of harm. And I'm sure you've seen some of the rather dystopian things in the patent record about self-assembling nanoparticle vaccines or cryptocurrency based on body activity data and, and graphene oxide being used in the vaccines. Even Pfizer admitted in their February 2023 document dump that they were using graphene oxide in their trials. And then Uh, Just this month, actually, there was a paper published that showed that there's a cancer drug now that can be delivered to a particular part of the body. How they pull that off, I don't know. But they can use graphene oxide to carry a drug to a particular part of the body, and then they can use a cell phone to tell the medication to unlock from its package. And so those are just a few of the mad scientist type things um, that are available to be seen if you're willing to look for it. So given what we've talked about so far and what appears to be a clear coordinated attempt at genocide, and that given the growing number of people who claim to have found other concerning ingredients in the shot, what's your take on the plausibility of things like hydrogels or heavy metals or graphene oxide or even parasites? What's the plausibility of those being found? And am I just totally falling for crazy conspiracy theories and being distracted? Or are there other potential concerns that we should be looking into? Yeah, so that's this is a good um, conversation because we want to, you know, know truth and we want to be able to, to treat patients. Um, and there is so much information out there. And some physicians will say, well, that's, that's not, that's kind of crazy talk talking about the graphene oxide or the hydrogels. Um, But if we can recognize that they have declared themselves, such as with the article that you read with the graphene oxide being able to be manipulated by a cell phone and being turned on and, and activating that medication, it shows us that these, these things that have been discussed are not crazy and I think that it is important to always be ever diligent in doing, you know, the due diligence and, and process of trying to get to the bottom of what they're actually doing to us, even if we might not all agree, even if we might not all have a consensus on what is happening, we have to be able to say, well, what is the most common denominator? How do we move forward? How do we... Um, heal and how do we treat no matter what is is happening but i don't think it's crazy and i don't think it's a waste of time to be able to investigate those things okay good <laughs> thank you for telling me i'm not crazy then because that's I, I i guess i really want to cover all our bases and find out what really is this and th- to me the hydrogel is a fascinating one if, if, if polyethylene glycol is a hydrogel or if it is something that could be harmful and we overlook it and all we focus on is a spike protein because I've, I've recently been studying that so much of this exercise of trying to put this guide together has been trying to define terms. And like we throw around so many words as if we all know what we're talking about. And sometimes we run over words and hydrogel was one that was to me, I had to get my head around. I just thought of it as like a little, it's fat that surrounds it. So the, the whatever the package is, the payload can be delivered. But a hydrogel is actually, if you think like diapers, like the something that absorbs a huge disproportionate amount of water for the size that it is. I've I've seen my kids come out of the ocean with a diaper on and it's amazing how huge the diaper becomes, right? Or somewhere, I don't even know where they got them, but my kids have these little tiny balls. I think one of the neighbors gave it to them. It's about the size of a BB. And 
they put these, you know, maybe a quarter cup of them in a bowl and then poured water over them. And they ballooned up to this huge thing that overflowed the bowl. And if that's what a hydrogel is, and it's in these injections, I think to just dismiss that, to me, that might even explain clots on some level that something could absorb that much liquid, maintain its integrity. If we overlook that or don't have a way to um, disrupt it, that would be problematic. But I guess I take comfort in, in your perspective that it matters less maybe what they are and do we have a mechanism by which to dissolve them. But I do hope people take up the challenge of, of continuing to research these hydrogels and these clots and figuring out how to prevent that. So do you know of anything in particular that might help people identify if that could be a, a something they're dealing with? Is a D-dimer test the main way you might find that? Or what other things might indicate that you've got some of that clotting or, or swelling or something else going on like that? Yeah. So the clotting, I do know that the D-dimer test is, excuse me, the D-dimer test is a, a test that shows fibrin degradation products, which indicates that you have a clot and that your body is trying to break it down or that you are breaking it down, at least that there is likely presence. Now, it's not it's not a specific test that shows that you have a clot for sure. If you have no D-dimer, it's pretty solid evidence that you don't have a clot. But if you do have elevated D-dimer, it's pretty decent evidence that you might. And so there is that. Um, but I'm on the hydrogel. Your description is good. And I have recently been learning about hydrogels too, and the concern of the effects of that in the body and how devastating that could be, especially to create sort of blockages, which then could create this um, accumulation of fibrin and then these proteins that can create these long clots. And so it is something that would be very, very bad for the body. And there's no, there's no test that I know of that could evaluate that. Okay. Well, at least we're, <laughs> we're on the scent of what may be a problem. We can continue to look for solutions as we go. So right, one other topic I wanted to cover with you um, is just the idea that there's some people out there who have not taken the shots, but they, they spend a lot of time around people who have. And there seems to be a real or at least plausible phenomenon of what people are calling vaccine shedding or something about the people who got it is impacting the people who didn't. And so what I even heard Peter McCullough talk about this, like he said, it's this is a genuinely real phenomenon. And Pfizer even talked about they were looking for that in their trial. So talk about what you may know about the phenomenon of shedding and what would be wise for people who maybe who didn't take the shots to be considering uh, if they spend a lot of time around people, especially freshly in, inoculated people. Yeah, I, I wish we knew more specifics about shedding. We know that there are effects of being around um, the vaccinated as far as uh, affecting menstrual cycles, um, even creating such significant inflammation that patients even develop myocarditis after having close exposure to a vaccinated person um, and uh, other effects that are similar to the vaccinated. So we don't know exactly what's happening. We think that there are exosomes that could be exhaled. We think that there are uh, is the ability for spike to really come out of any body fluid. And that includes sweat, saliva, semen, um, really anything that is um, the, that the body is producing could be um, shedding spike. Also, there's an interesting theory. I was talking to Dr. Ryan Cole two days, two or three days ago, and he was saying something that he thinks also could be happening is that um, those that are experiencing effects on their menstrual cycle, we've known for a long time that pheromones affect menstrual cycles. And so somebody who's had the vaccine also could be exuding um, a, a pheromone signal type thing that could affect um, other females. And um, so whatever it is, we know that there are effects of those that are unvaccinated from being around the vaccinated. And I think we need to learn more. 
Got it. Well, thank you for the insights that you do have. So what, let's just let put yourself in the shoes of like, make, try to make this personal. So if you've got somebody who has come to you and, and is exhibiting symptoms or thinks they may have an injury from one of these shots, are there particular screenings that you do? Or what is your starting point? How do you help someone triage this and figure out what it is that, that might be their path forward? Yeah, so basic blood work and I'll check in the markers, CRP and sedimentation rate. I'll check autoimmune labs because I've seen development of all sorts of autoimmune conditions since um, the vaccine has come out. Things that I saw more rarely, like I am seeing so much hyperthyroidism since um, in patients that have had the vaccine. I didn't, I was, it was more of a rare thing. It was mostly always hypothyroidism. Um, and now I'm not even surprised when I find it on labs. I'm also seeing an extraordinary amount of B12 deficiency in, in patients that have had the vaccine. Their B12s are just tanked. And we know that um, the B12 levels are affected by the intrinsic factor, which there can be an autoimmune process against the intrinsic factor. And so they're not absorbing B12. Man, I, that has been such a, a new phenomenon to find a B, low B12 in almost every single um, vaccinated patient. And, um, and basically just looking for inflammation, D-dimer, and sometimes cardiac enzymes, and if we can get to do some um, foundational work on healing um, and identifying nutritional deficiencies and identifying if there's inflammation and autoimmune diseases, then we can start making some progress. It's, it has been very rare that I haven't had some success in patients. Now, it doesn't happen um, so fast and it doesn't always happen completely where they feel is completely back to normal. Um, I think that's going to take time and definitely not um, being uh, insulted with further toxins. But I would say that in general, checking for those things as baselines has been pretty helpful. Right on. Okay. Well, so I guess the the other puzzle I want to just challenge my thinking here a little bit, because the more I've looked into this, the more I've studied trying to help people, it's almost like the simpler this has gotten. And I've, I've weeded through a lot of, I guess, what I could kindly say are some unhelpful detox guides or um, just unapproachable. They're just they're onerous and, and too many supplements and not enough specificity or they don't account for behavior change and, and the realities of of really trying to work this out. And I, I keep get getting redirected back to just doubling down on healing instead of treatment on on opening the detox pathways, making sure the exits are open, you're pooping, you're peeing, you're sweating, you're breathing, you're elevating your heart rate, focus on a good diet and good water and movement and smooth digestion, unplugging from fear and um, just adding, you know, a few key supplements or tinctures here or there. But am I crazy? Am I oversimplifying this too much? Or is this really just what we've needed to do all along and return to basics? What is your thought on the the simplicity versus the nuance of, of investigation here? I think that that is a, a such an accurate way, an accurate approach to being able to help these patients. And it's been completely underestimated and maybe even ignored in the medical community as part of the um, treatment basis. And if we don't address those things, it's going to be hard to make progress. And sometimes that's all that's necessary. I know that checking the lab, some of these um, uh, more significant conditions is important, but even those can, can be helped with all of those measures that you've mentioned. Right on. Well, the yeah, to me that so many of the things that the, I, I, I take the position because I'm a health coach, not a doctor, I have to think healing instead of treatment. And I think, well, if I can just get out of the body's way, give it what it needs to heal so often that I don't have to get as precise with it. I just have to unburden a very burdened body and, and let the body know what it already or do what it already knows to do. So thank you for <laughs> validating that I might be on the right track there. So um, I guess I'd love for you to put your, your doctor hat on and the empathetic person who sees the person in front of them. Cause what I love so much about you is you don't just 
see your patients as a lab test or a math equation. You see them as a person. You see the whole human in front of them or in front of you and you empathize with them or you you think about life. And that's part, part of why you've opened your practice and, and switched a little bit the way you do medicine. So I guess offer some encouragement or talk to the people who are not used to having that. What would um, the whole human version of Dr. Gessling look like? What does somebody expect when they come and what would what would you encourage them to look for when they're looking for a doctor? I think that you need to have a doctor that is willing to go out of allopathic, typical mainstream medicine for sure, um, because it's had such devastating effects on health and it has not shown itself to be trustworthy. And then um, being able to bring hope to patients and helping them not be so fearful of all the unknown and all the new information that's coming out and to be able to have faith in um, their ability to trust God and faith in their ability to help heal themselves. I'm listening to a book called Biology of Belief, and although I don't agree with everything he has said, um, I think that it has such an important um, effect on our health to be able, we can control our destiny so much with our, um, with our attitudes and our thoughts and our um, eliminating our fears and being able to have positive outlook um, that, that there is, there is hope for healing and it is possible. And patients, when they have that freedom to, to not think that, you know, all is lost is I think the biggest component for healing. Right on. I, yeah. I love that. Cause it, it, you, every time I've talked to you, you exude that hope and positivity and can do, we'll figure it out. And it just, I don't know how much, doctors appreciate sometimes how people hang on their very word for, you know, life and death are in the power of your tongue and you have the opportunity and you do, you speak life and you speak hope. And it's just fun to be in your orbit and, and watch you encourage people and lift them up with your words, but also your knowledge and your calm presence and level headed. Hey, let's, that, that might be, so let's investigate it and let's figure out what's here. And um, I'm just thrilled to know you, to be able to, introduce you to other people. I can't wait to get this interview out and and see who it helps. And um, thank you so much for sharpening my thinking and letting me push you in in return and and iron iron sharpening iron. So any any, any other final words of encouragement or things you want to say to people um, as we wrap up here? Well, I would like to say that this this um, time period we're in, this awakening, and by the way, thank you for all of those nice words. And I am I am so thrilled to be connected to you and working with you, and um, so glad to be able to talk to you know um, your listeners about these important topics. But I would say that you know this time period that we're in with this awakening is what a time to be alive and what a time to be living and knowing the truth about so many Mm -hmm. things, how exciting that is. And to also be able to rely on the Lord for continuing in our, in our walk as warriors for him and being able to rely on him to give us the insight into what is, is good or good for us and safe. And being able to reject those things that have been coming at us so strongly, peer pressure, you know, how how 2021 played out where there was so much of a Mm -hmm. psyop to accept this poison and to be able to move forward and not ever let that happen again. Yeah, no, I, I am right there with you. It's been a heck of an awakening. There are so many things I thought I understood before COVID that have completely turned on their heads. And like you, I I now wake up eager and say, my gosh, what a time to be alive. The amount of things that are coming to light and to think that we have a mass awakening. Nobody was skeptical of vaccines. And now it's like, you know what? Now I trust them. Like the the traffic is one direction right now. The awakening is unstoppable. And the the mass of humanity that's finally saying, no, I, I, I'm done. I won't comply. And there is a better way. And 
as we, to your point, as we shake off the shackles of fear, if, as that no longer rules our behavior and we, you get your breath. And sometimes that takes a while because the stuff that's coming to light is uncomfortable and it does force you to say, now what? Um, but there is hope. And, and to Heather's point, it's, it's not just found in um, what pill you take. It's, it's found in, I'd say, the power of God working through the hearts of people and the, the awakening that is possible as that happens. And as people realize and focus on what we have in common versus what divides us, that there's such a path forward and it's fun to be on that journey with you. So thank you so much for joining us today, Heather. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Christian. It's been great. Oh, and by the way, if you are happen to be looking for a doctor and live anywhere near Macon or Boonville, Missouri, or if you just want to know about more about Dr. Gessling's practice, you can find her website at GesslingFamilyWellness.com. Gessling is spelled G-E-S-S-L-I-N-G. You can also look her up on Facebook or follow her on Twitter, or I guess it's called X now, at H Gessling. And that is it for today's episode. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Deconstructing Conventional Podcast. If you could use a coach in your corner, check out our membership offerings and personal coaching options at truewholehuman.com. To stay current with our latest episodes and offerings, subscribe to our newsletter. And if you want to keep the conversation going or suggest a guest or podcast topic, visit us on our free speech-friendly social channel, truewholehuman.social. I'll see you in the next episode.